Welcome to Tripping Over the Barrel, a series that highlights the unique personalities within the oil and gas industry and the stories they have to share with your hosts and lead storytellers, Tilo and Dr. Funkenstein. Christopher, Chris Atherton is on the podcast today, ladies and gentlemen, the up and coming face of the oil and gas industry. This is Jeremy Funk alongside Tim Loser. And this is a super fun episode for us. We were just wrapping a little bit beforehand with with Chris, a, a unique background that he has. Uh, certainly a well-known guy. We're going to touch on his his time right out of school at, at Enron, growing up in Kentucky, uh, the genesis of, of EnergyNet and where they're at today, places to eat in Amarillo. Tim, why don't you uh, give a little intro to Mr. Atherton? Well, first of all, you're not kidding that he's the up-and-coming face of the of the industry. <laughs> Got him on the the cover of the Nate magazine, nice little caricature. If you guys haven't seen that, you ought to get a picture of that. But yeah, so unfortunately, that's 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 what I've been told that that's how I look, especially after <laughs> a, a beer or three, right? And there's been a few during this whole crazy COVID stuff. You know, Chris, you're sort of just one of those guys, right? Everybody knows you. You're always at the events. You got a, a sort of a big personality. What's it been like for you to not have these events? And, and before you answer that question. You wrote a post that I shared with a bunch of people early in COVID that summed things up so well, like, love my family, love being home, but man, I miss a day where I well, drag I've, my ass to I've the got airport. I've yeah. got the post up here, Jeremy. I need a day trip where I board a Southwest flight at 6 a.m. to Houston, to yep. Midland, come back by 9 p.m. the same day. And it goes on, talks about you know getting a pecan ball dessert at Petroleum Club and so on. <laughs> So it was, a, it was a great post. And at the time, it, that was four months ago. You know, I know. It seems like so long ago. And yeah, I mean, I've been in Houston. I have uh, not been traveling for work. And prior to that, I mean, prior three, four, five years, I mean, I was probably on a Southwest flight two times a week to go to yeah. Midland or Tulsa or Oklahoma City or Dallas or somewhere going to you know, client meetings and, and uh, conferences or, or art energy events, things like that. Uh, so yeah, this, this shutdown is definitely a, a new way of uh, doing business. Has EnergyNet really embraced using like Zoom and Teams calls and things? I mean, how have you guys adapted? Yeah, definitely. I mean, face-to-face meeting is always great and, and, and definitely preferable. But uh, but yeah, I'm on Zoom meetings and, and Teams calls all day long. I have, you know, a uh, button-up collared shirt nearby to, to throw <laughs> on, baseball cap. I haven't had a haircut since March, so uh, my hair is getting a little shaggy. But beyond that, uh, yeah, video calls all the time. So but it seems yeah. to the, the remote working seems to be working. Our, our company, you know, we have people in Amarillo, Texas, about 30 of them. But we have offices in Houston, Dallas, Midland, Oklahoma City, uh, and Denver. So we're all, we've been remote really you know, the most of our existence. Got it. So, so let's backtrack going, going way back, Chris. I'm, I'm guessing you're in your early 40s, kind of like I am. But, but tell me a little bit about growing up in, in Kentucky. Uh, I'm guessing you probably a University of Kentucky basketball fan what, what was life like and then the adjustment to moving to texas yeah no that's a, uh, I, I grew up in western kentucky and paducah kentucky uh, it was a real real pretty area two big lakes and rivers and everything my parents grew up there uh big university of kentucky wildcat fan i didn't have baseball around there so we always rooted for the st louis cardinals they were mm-hmm. kind of nearby it was either them or the cubs probably for most people or the reds but a uh, but great area i moved when i was you know in, in elementary school to, to clear lake texas uh suburb of Houston. And that was just a big culture shock. I mean, uh, where I lived in Paducah was a very small town, you know, I don't know, 50,000 people, 30,000 people. 
and then you know, the, the suburb of Houston that I moved to was probably 150,000 with cookie cutter houses and master plan mm-hmm. community and a, you know, a, a frame shop and a Montessori school at every corner. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, it was a really good experience. I enjoyed going, growing up down there. So then you, you go to high school, you, you stay in college in Texas, and then you get out and you work for a small, slightly known company at the time called Enron. Tell me how, how'd you get the gig at Enron and what was that like? Yeah, no, it was, I mean, it was a really great experience for me. It's a good, uh, you know, it's, it's good to have something like that happen early in life where you can kind of uh, <laughs> realize or have a mindset that it's not, not all sunny days. Uh, it helps yeah. for experiences like this in the oil and gas industry when it's not all sunny days. But uh, when I did work there, it was, you know, a very coveted job to have in Houston. And it was, you know, kind of high flying and uh, really, it was really exciting to work there. I worked in a, a, a software uh version of uh, the Enron provided to some of its power and natural gas customers. So uh, as you guys both know, the kind of software business uh, that it was, it was tied to Enron and some of the origination and natural gas and power deals that they did with big nationwide uh, clients. But it, it was really, it was, you know, very eye opening and very interesting to see, you know, to be in kind of the belly of the beast as everything unfolded. There were, you know, people that, you know, or, or the, there was like trading floors where people, when, when things started to get bad, that people would stand up and say, Stocks at fifty dollars, stand up three weeks later. Stocks at fifteen dollars, three dollars, <laughs> and it was just seeing it all kind of spiral down was uh, was pretty wild. Yeah, I was not sure on their timeline. I couldn't remember when the you know the ultimate collapse happened. So you were there riding that down when it was really just crazy. Yes, definitely. Uh, I think it was December second or December third, two thousand one. But yeah, I was there when it, when that all happened and. You know, walked out with my box full of my belongings with four thousand four hundred ninety nine of my closest friends and coworkers. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, very surreal experience. I ultimately, I still have some swag, but I, I sold uh, a lot on eBay at the time. Cathartic kind of <laughs> event. Get, get it out of the house and get some money for it. Totally. Yeah. I mean, do you still have a lot of friends and contacts that you uh, spent time with there twenty years ago? You know, uh, here and there, I mean, there, there, I know quite a few people that did work there and we didn't necessarily know each other at the time we worked there, but uh, there's lots of uh, Enron veterans or, or fugitives still around in the industry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. Oh, absolutely. No doubt. I mean, you know, I've I had some colleagues who were a little bit different, right? You, you hit that right out of school. And I had some who were in their late 50s and 60s and, and had a you know much different view of it. With like, hey, I was going to retire after this. Now I got to work for 10 months. Right. Yes. I, I, did, I didn't have any enough money to lose because I was like right after. Right after so it, was, it was just kind exactly. of entertaining for me. Yeah, exactly. So quick question for you here. You, you tend to show up at a lot of trade shows. It's been something you've done traditionally. Do you have a favorite or do you have a conference where you feel like you uh, either do the most business or have the most success? Yeah, I mean, we, we try to attend lots of events as a company and my, myself. I definitely do as well. I tend to like the um, uh, the NAEP events. We have summer NAEP going on now, but it is virtual, so it's quite quite different. But you know, the uh, big granddaddy NAEP in the winter, and then also like some of the uh, the Heart Energy events, uh, the A and D conference, as well as some of the Intercom conferences. I think those are, are very good. It's just um, you know we get a lot out of it. I get a lot out of it. I kind of think of business development as the using the the fifty butt rule. You know, if fifty butts are there of my clients, I should probably be there too. Uh, but, so uh, but yeah. how is the transition from you know physical in person events like NAPE to going to a virtual NAPE? How's that changing for you? And I guess 
the attendees? Are they effective, as effective, not as effective for you? I mean, I think a lot of these conferences are really predicated on people going there and being there in person. And this is kind of a, a fix. You know, the, there, there was a minerals and royalty conference that was very well attended and always a great conference. It's just difficult when it, when it is virtual. I think, I think those will hopefully come back to in-person events. I think people like to see each other and talk to each other in person. Yeah, I would agree. And, you know, Tim, we've had some discussions around this too. I'm very fortunate. The company that I work at, W Energy Software, is, is doing really well right now, a lot of trajectory. But still, it's tough to get people to, to sign off on these larger business deals without seeing the whites of your eyes. I think that you have to have that level of confidence with somebody. Either you know the people from a, a past dealing or uh, you've built such a great level of comfort. But I think it's hard to generate a relationship start to finish and, and close it without face-to-face, at least as has been what I've seen. And I, you know, I'm hopeful that we can get back to some of these events because oil and gas and oil and gas tech in general, I think is more of a high touch personal industry than a lot of other segments out there. Yeah, yeah I completely agree. And of course, I'm on record. I'm not a big fan of, and it could be just the types of things that we're selling. Trade shows just, you know, unless you're really putting the investment in, and obviously EnergyNet does, it's just tough to get enough kind of leads for us. But I think Chris, your business is a little bit different and really lends itself to, because you know, you're actually selling properties. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, I, I think there's a fundamental difference to the way I approach a trade show and the way an energy net would. Mm-hmm. Sure. I mean, w- w- with energy net, we're essentially working as a two-sided marketplace between buyers and sellers of oil and gas assets. We tip the assets we sell on behalf of our clients, typically range in value from as low as you know $100,000 to as much as $150, $200 million individually. We sell wow. 2,000 transactions a year. But I guess what's interesting and what makes trade shows and networking you know, a benefit and a, a kind of a, a necessity for us is, is really almost any, any person, any participant in the oil and gas industry could be a potential client. In, in that they have they have oil and gas assets for sale. They are Chevron, Exxon, BP, Conoco, or they're an individual that has mineral interest, royalty interest, or they're you know they're buying assets. So you know, we're working with buyers and sellers. So you know at events like NAEP, you know we're or other large conferences, you know we're we're wanting to to talk to those people that that have potential assets to sell or are looking for assets to buy. And that's just a it's a large universe of potential companies and individuals. Uh, so it makes sense for us to kind of branch out and cover a lot of ground and events, networking, trade shows like that are, are places that you can do that and more than you would in a normal week of sales calls or two weeks of sales calls. Yeah, no, agreed. And a couple more questions about EnergyNet. Is this focused just on domestic lower 48 assets? Primarily. Uh, so so we have our what we call our auction business, which is kind of lower 48, domestic oil and gas, working interests. Uh, overage royalties, non-ops, leasehold, and usually kind of sub $10 million in value. And then we have our sealed bid business, which really focuses on higher value deals, more complex fields. So we've done about 135 transactions valued between $10 million and $175 million in value. Wow. And those usually have more of a story to tell where we are an in-house team of technical people, uh, engineers and geologists will build you know, kind of a roadmap or a development plan for what to do to how to how to unlock the value of these assets. And then we have our government resources business, uh, which is we facilitate the government, uh, the leasehold sales for the United States, for state of Texas, for 
Bureau of Land Management. We don't do Bureau of Energy, uh, BOEM offshore, but we, we are talking to them and, you know, making other in-grounds with, with other uh, global entities as well. Right. You know, the COVID thing that we're going through now, you know, obviously caused a downturn in the industry. And of course, there was another one, you know, five, six years ago. And it's, you know, the industry is famous for, you know, the kind of these ups and downs as any commodity market would. In my head, and I don't know if this logic holds true, I, I, th- I would think that EnergyNet is going to be a little bit insulated because there's always going to be yeah. in a downturn, someone selling or you know maybe not be as many people buying. But how has EnergyNet, does it have the same cycles as the rest of the industry or how does that work? We do have some insulation in that you know in a down market, there are still companies selling. So it's unfortunate that there are companies that are having to restructure and go through bankruptcy. But what that usually means is they're selling some assets. and We're helping them do that. And they're buyers that are picking them up. So there is that side of it. In a down market, people, companies are selling off non-core assets to raise cash, to pay down debt, to put other areas in an up market when things are, are boom times and things are going for $90,000 an acre. You know, we're yeah. experiencing benefiting from that too, because our we earn our fee by on a success-based commission based on the value of the asset. But volatility is bad for acquisitions and divestitures. It just, they're trying to make a deal happen when there's negative WTI prices or when over the weekend oil drops $20. That just is very difficult to get buyer and seller to match up. So in March, you know, March 9th or 10th, when the, the OPEC uh, surplus occurred, you know, that kind of locked things up. And then again on April 20th, 2020, with the negative WTI prices, that just kind of sellers pump the brakes on sales processes, buyers are unsure what to bid. I would say that, you know, in the past June, July, things are, are getting back to normal, kind of no, no news is, is mm-hmm. good news. And that's allowing deals to get done. So we've been able to successfully close a number of transactions for, you know, the likes of Chevron and Noble Energy and Merit Energy and XTO and a handful of others uh, that were sizable deals that, you know, it's just, it's, it's hard to get a deal done when, when the world's upside down. But yeah. Stable commodity prices do help uh, make it for a more conducive A&D market. Absolutely. Man, a lot of different ways we could take this, I think, at this point in the conversation. You know, one of the things that, that I'm curious about for you is where is this activity happening? Does it tend to align with where most of the drilling is? Or are we seeing a lot of people in, say, Wyoming looking to shed assets? Is it Pennsylvania? Does it sort of match up with where drilling rigs are? or like what? what? Paducah, Kentucky. <laughs> so the the buying activity, you know, has historically been, you know, kind of in the hot areas. So in the Delaware Basin, in the Midland Basin, uh, you know, yeah. a couple of years ago, buying activity was in the scoop stack. So you know, sometimes what we see a lot of times, EnergyNet is hired to sell non-core assets for large publicly traded companies, or you know, uh, large publicly traded companies are exiting out. They're they're becoming a pure player, so they're selling off their non-core assets, which is you know, it can be a, or a company starter for someone else. So, you know, in recent years, I mean, we've seen a lot of activity in Wyoming. We've seen a lot of activity in East Texas and uh, the Western Anadarko, for example, South Texas. So some of it, there's conventional assets that are for sale. There's unconventional assets for sale. And it really, I mean, there's buyers, uh, kind of laser focused buyers for, for each little segment. You know, it could be non-op Bakken assets. There's a group of buyers that buy those assets almost uh, exclusively. So we're, you know, and what we're trying to do is just create a competitive process and get full market value for for really any 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 size asset, good, bad, or ugly. Yeah, that's that's awesome. That's great. 
when you're representing a property or selling a property or you're obviously you're, you're kind of representing both sides, just kind of getting them together. Are you doing the kind of sales presentations? Or are you just providing the information or how involved are you in, you know, trying to you know, right. sell for the, for the lower value deals? What we're doing is putting together a very comprehensive you know, data room that has everything you need to evaluate property. And what we're trying to push is, is not necessarily us saying that this is the investment of a lifetime, you know, three exclamation points. You know, we're saying, here's this opportunity, here's the information you need to evaluate it. And we want you to competitively bid on it on what you think it's worth. And then we're able to close those transactions, just kind of bringing the opportunity to the attention. We, we our, our sales efforts on the lower value properties are more creating a competitive marketplace and making sure that our universe of 30,000 prospective buyers knows that it's available and they can bid on it. On the higher value deals, the kind of the sealed bid, $10 million to $200 million deals, then we're doing more of a sales presentation on the, the merits of the asset mm-hmm. itself and you know, what the how to unlock the upside, you know, drilling plans, you know, here's the PDP component, here's the, uh, you know, the 24 PUDs that you can drill, here's the acreage value, here's a midstream component, and doing more of the explanation of how to unlock the value if you were the winner of the, the, the process and throwing the keys to the field. No, thank you for that that level of description. So I want to talk about Twitter a little bit. I see I'm, I'm reading your bio here on the, the Nate magazine. I mean, you're probably seeing some of this energy FinTwit stuff. I mean, man, it is really something else on there. I don't know who any of these guys are, but I think you actually represent yourself like I do, which is a rarity. Yeah, I do. I'm, I'm myself. Uh, who knows I me? Mean, I may have a couple burner accounts out there. <laughs> uh, no, but it, it's like for a a and for an oil and gas guy, energy guy, I've been in Houston, you know, doing this 20 years, like finding this little corner of the internet that's like in my world. And even you know, even I don't know, who, I don't know who most of the anonymous <laughs> guys are, but it's just like it's uh, it's very addicting to read all this stuff when they're talking about real people I know or or, uh, or real deals or you know. It is a lot of trash talking, and I, I, I get that. A lot, maybe short sellers or, or whatnot, but it, it's very entertaining. It feels like uh, just a, a whole bunch of gossip and, uh, and, and making people laugh. And so fortunately, I haven't, with the anonymity of the others, I haven't. You know, <laughs> no one's like gone like full force attacked me yet. But uh, and I don't know really what I would I do if, if that did happen. But uh, but so no, I, I, I love Russ reading. Brush ignorant of Fintwit. What is uh, what is that, Jeremy? So. <laughs> <laughs> if you go on to Twitter, right? And I learned this from Colin, following Colin. He goes by f- at Frackslap. Oh, yeah. Anyways, Colin's a big, big, big he's, a, he's Twitter famous. Oh, yeah. I mean, he, he gets a bunch of viral tweets and, and all that stuff. But basically, there's, there's sort of different segments of Twitter. And somehow, with people like myself and Chris and Colin found this little, little corner of the world called Energy FinTwit, which is short for Energy you know, Finance Twitter, Financial Twitter. And it's like a bunch of dudes who have like fake names. It's like the uh, Landman Life or A and D Bad Boy, and and these guys are going in there, and you can tell they work in the industry and they really know their shit, right? They're like, let me give you the Cliff's Notes version of of Oventive's last quarterly presentation. This is a lie. This is wrong. This is a bad plan. This, <laughs> you know what I mean? And they, it's it's really, uh, and then people chime in with memes and pictures, and it's just hilarious. But I'm telling you, I, I don't know who these guys are, but they're very smart. Does it yeah. get pretty personal? Do they get a lot of flames going back and forth? Oh yeah, a yeah, yeah, yeah. Not for uh, not LinkedIn at all. It's the opposite <laughs> of LinkedIn, I would say. I mean, it's it's very uh, I don't know, 
that, that I wouldn't say personal, but very descriptive of some of the things that the, the wrongness in the industry or the things that could be could be done better. Which is which yeah. maybe maybe the industry needs that a little bit. Not not that I, I try to try to avoid that portion of it, but it is fun to read. Yeah, I mean, I think that more people are keeping an eye on that stuff than than you'd probably realize, right? I mean, it's it's a it's a pretty small world out there. And just like I mean, you, I'm looking at our LinkedIn profiles. We have 243 mutual connections, and you and I have probably only shaken hands twice, right? Yeah. So this this industry is just like that. I mean, it's, it's a, small, but it also it needs to laugh at itself. Yeah, right. I know. And, and you know, we just don't do enough of that. And you know, anyway. And I guess we've done a lot of conversations about travel in the industry. And I know that obviously from your, your post on, you know, and your statements here, two days a week traveling out somewhere, obviously you're going to a lot of the same places, Oklahoma city, Tulsa, Midland, what's your kind of favorite go-to oil town? Where do you want to, you know, what's the one that as soon as this thing's lifted and you're, you feel comfortable traveling, where are you going to go? I mean, I, I like all of them for different reasons. I mean, I, I think I really have a good time when I'm in Oklahoma City. Uh, I mean, I like I like Midland and Dallas too, but I really like uh, Oklahoma City. I, I, I've been to like the 21C Hotel over there, which is this cool museum art hotel it has all this crazy stuff in there. And yep. Jones Assembly, and I've seen some concerts at the Criterion Club. Uh, but I don't know. I, I dig Oklahoma City. Tulsa's pretty cool too. But um, usually, I'm I'm there. I'm in and out, and or I'm staying in a hotel, and I got meetings all day, and then I'm on a flight that afternoon, so I don't get to experience some of the cool stuff of the cities. But uh, but those are some good ones. What's your yeah. most off the wall oil city that you've uh, had to go to on business? Oh man, uh, West Iberia, Iberville Parish, and West Baton Rouge. Yeah. Iberville Parish. I think that was the one time in my career I've eaten at a Shoney's two times in one day. Nice morning breakfast and a dinner because that was the restaurant. Yeah, southern South Louisiana can get a little little crazy. Yeah. Tim, you didn't ask me. Thanks for that. But to answer your question for me, it's Calgary. I love my trips to Calgary. I feel like it's sort of like the slightly friendlier Canadian Denver. And uh, that'll be one to get to. It's also part of my sales territory. I have clients up there. But if I were to go, I'd have to quarantine for two weeks. Oh, wow. uh, Oh, yeah. You have to to get in there. You have to quarantine. Interesting. My my next one is, I mean, I need to get to Bakersfield just because I've got a lot of activity out there. But so that'd be just my next one. I think as far as I agree with you, Jeremy, that getting up to Calgary would be a really nice trip if I could figure out a way to to swing that. It's it's one of my favorite stops. Of course, we used to have to go there five times a year when we were working together. So Yeah, they'd always drag us up there for the holiday party like mid-December. We're like, could we shift this to uh, maybe a May or June? Can we have a Christmas in July party instead? <laughs> couple more questions here before you chris and then we'll let you get on to the your fifth cup of coffee um <laughs> football right i know you're a big football fan you're a texans fan and all that they've got some promising things going on do you think we're gonna we're gonna have nfl football this year now that's a good question i sure hope we do but with college canceling i just i can't it's around the corner i mean the the preseason game should be starting soon i would think i mean i just, it, I, just I don't see how they're gonna have a normal season i mean the stadiums and the all the people together. I mean, I, I go to the, you know Texans tailgates, and you know everybody walking in, everybody walking out. You know, going by each other in the in the stands where it's crowded. I just can't see that being. I mean, yeah. I don't know. it's definitely not going to be the same experience. It's definitely going to be something different. And I can tell you that just watching baseball and watching uh, basketball, it's not even. I, I did not believe that 
the crowd experience in the building would affect me, the TV watcher, but it does. Mm-hmm. Yes, right. I agree with that. Yeah. I notice a difference. It feels different. I know they, they're pumping the the kind of the noise in baseball. They're pumping it in, so it sounds like something's going on, but it, it really does affect the viewing joy that I get. Yeah, there's not the enthusiasm. It's just, it just feels, it feels lifeless. And football yes. is literally, you, you know, it is so emotionally intense for the people watching and in the crowd that, I think that that's going to be is going to have a, a really big impact on, you know, the well, my enjoyment of watching it on TV or you know, obviously not being at the game though. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's going to be. I mean, this is one weird year, but no football, no college football, things like that are just going to be make it weirder. Yeah, it's just going to have guys like us working more. I don't know. I I feel like for for me, things like travel and sports were were more forced breaks. I think I'm actually. Right now, it's it's mostly work and family. Right, it's, yeah. I don't feel like I have a lot of these other things to balance it out. I actually went and played golf last night, and it's it, it's great. Like you know, love playing golf. With, you know, with some buddies of mine, but it's sort of like you feel like you're sacrificing one thing or the other. You're sacrificing work or you're sacrificing family because you don't have these other things. I think if I were in a normal routine, doing lunches, doing happy hours, going out to play golf, wouldn't feel like I'm missing out on something. Right, but exactly. It's a and I'm I'm more of a college football, college sports fan, so SEC is a big deal for me. But I have a an observation I want to ask you about. So we started this whole thing off talking about being a Kentucky basketball fan when you live in Western Kentucky. One thing in Texas, you tend to uh, you have a connection to the school. You know, your parents went there, mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. went there, or you know, or there's usually a connection. So for A and M, you know, if you which is oh, yeah. You have a connection to the school, and that's why you're rooting for that school. One thing that's interesting for me as an outsider, when I went to the SEC basketball tournament in Nashville when it was there, by the way, if you can get to that, that is a great scene, mm. the whole thing. But it is overrun with Kentucky fans, and that's fine. Yeah. They, they're yeah. the best team in the, in the whole conference. In the conference, but yeah, for sure. When you start talking to the Kentucky fans, there is no connection to the university. <laughs> Except they live in Kentucky, so it's yeah. a very it's a weird thing for me. So, so Chris, you know, I want to kind of dig into that a little bit. How does that connection work? I mean, it's just a very different feel for me. I think it's because I mean, it's a uh, you know your your state has its identity, and uh, yeah. if you don't have a professional sports team to root for, and you know, it's just it, that's their professional sports team essentially, and you know. That's all I can think. I mean, and it's just they've, they've had so much success, and it's you know, it feels people in Kentucky wear UK shirts and Wildcat shirts and hats and stickers on their car, and it just it's an association whether you went there or not. It's just your your team. I'm going to uh, tell a quick story, and then I'm going to shut this down. One of my favorite travel stories. I was in Houston actually. This is probably four years ago, 2016, for for an interview. I'm a big basketball fan, big Boston Celtics fan, and I was at the Ritz. Uh, or the Four Seasons, sorry. The Four Seasons right downtown. You guys can picture it, right? Sitting there in the lobby doing some work. And then uh, a, a big bus shows up. And clearly it's uh, it's an NBA team. And the, the Sacramento Kings start walking off. And I'm like, oh, my God, they, all these guys. And sure enough, University of Kentucky grad, one of my favorites, Rajon Rondo, came out. I'm like, Rondo, Rondo. Cool. Like, yeah. That's yeah. awesome. But still super, super cool. It was like the last game of the season. He was neat. Got to, you know, talk. Uh, for a second, pretend that we were friends and, and go about our day. But I'm like, man, that was that was awesome. So tying it all together. Kentucky yeah, I heard I heard, uh, heard Rajon talking about that one day, talking about yeah, the guy yeah, in yeah, Houston yeah. one time at the Four Seasons. 
<laughs> Meeting you there. Yeah. It's awesome. Nice. Chris, thank you for your time, man. Appreciate what you do for the space, putting a good a good face and a good spin on things and, and look forward to uh, having a beverage with you. We can do stuff like that. Yeah, definitely. Here's for hoping you can get that uh, round trip to Midland going soon. Yeah, definitely. Well, hey, thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. Talk to you soon. Thanks, man. Thanks.